Welcome to the Dogwood Podcast, a presentation of Dogwood Church. For more information, visit dogwood.church. We hope you enjoy the message. Well, good morning to you again. We are, uh, we are glad that you are here. I hope that you and your family had an amazing Christmas, yes? You know, one of my favorite things about Christmas is being able to give the right gifts. I mean, sometimes getting is cool too, right? I mean, we're honest, we like to get something every once in a while, yes? But isn't it better just to give somebody something and you see their face light up because you, you thought through something and it, and it was just good? Well, you know, we got to experience that some this year uh, as a family. Um, we, we had a good Christmas. Uh, in many ways, we had a great Christmas. But, you know, for those of you guys that, that know me and, and um, you know that, that my dad died uh, the day after Thanksgiving. And so this is really the first Christmas that we are going through without someone who is always a part of my life. Right? I mean, he's not eternal. He wasn't, hadn't always been. But as long as I've been alive, he was always there. And so he was always a part of those memories that, that I had of growing up. And so this is the first time that we've experienced that. Um, and it's weird. Let me just tell you, it's weird. Some of you may be going through a, a, a tough time during this holiday season. Maybe the loss of a loved one. Maybe the loss of a job. Maybe the news of an illness. In a crowd this size, matter of fact, stats are that many of us are going through a little bit of a hard time. But let me just say, I stand here to tell you and, and to testify really that as a follower of Christ, even when you have the, what I call the weird times, but it's the, it's the grief, it's the missing your dad or your mom or whatever, whoever it is or whatever it is that you've lost, there still is incredible joy during this Christmas season. And that's weird to me too because it's it's like two conflicting emotions that, that, that I don't know how to describe it other than to say they're almost warring for space in, in my mind, in my soul. And so I, I think about, well, how, how do you have, how, how do I grieve that I've lost somebody? And yet, how do I also at the same time experience incredible joy during this season? And I got to tell you, it's really because of what we, what we really celebrate when we talk about Christmas, and it's the greatest gift of all, which is Jesus Christ. If you've been with us through this journey throughout the month of December, we have been telling, or Pastor Keith primarily, has been telling the Christmas story. We've gone through the first few chapters uh, in a couple of the books of the New Testament, and we've learned about who Jesus is and His faithfulness. Let me do a very, very quick recap for you where we've been, just in case maybe this is your first time here and you don't know where we've gone so far. Let me do a very quick recap. It's this. In week one, we saw the account of Gabriel, giving an angel, giving the news to Zachariah and Elizabeth, who were very old, beyond childbearing years. And the angel said to them, you're going to have a child. And they were like, yeah, whatever. And sure enough, they did. And this child was going to be kind of the forerunner and the announcer that the Messiah is about to be here. The Messiah has come. John the Baptist. In week two, we saw the account of God telling, uh, through, the, uh, through the angel Gabriel, telling Mary that she was going to be with child, even though she was not yet married, even though she had not yet been with a man, she was going to conceive and that she would have the Son of God. And then last Sunday, Pastor Keith taught us about Joseph's dream. Joseph's dream. And how God spoke to him in this dream and said, look, it, it's okay, I know it's a little strange that your fiancé is pregnant. But don't be afraid. It's a miraculous conception. 
And she is giving birth to the Messiah, whose name is going to be Jesus. And we saw that God is faithful even in those tough circumstances. On Christmas Eve, just a couple of days ago, Pastor Keith walked us through Jesus' birth and what it means and meant for mankind. How our sins could be completely forgiven and how we could be restored to God. And so today we continue with the Christmas story. It's a part of the story that to me has some very incredible things to learn and to have our faith strengthened. But it also has some very tragic news but stuff we can learn from. It's a story that helps us to know and trust that God is faithful, that God is believable. And even during the best times of our lives and even during the worst times of our lives, that God can give us joy. So we're going to break down Matthew chapter 2. That's where we're going to be today. If you've got a Bible, I encourage you to turn there. We're going to be in, in chapter 2 pretty much the whole time. We're going to try to tackle the whole chapter together. So let's pray and then we'll dig in. Father God, I thank you for this Christmas season. And even though in many ways it's been tough, I thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy and your faithfulness. Lord, I want to pray for those in this room who are having a hard time this Christmas. Help them and help me to be reminded of and to experience your unfailing love. As we dig into chapter 2, help us to see how you have been faithful and how your faithfulness helps us to trust you. God, for those in this room that already know you, help us to fall more in love with you today. And again, let it be a faith builder for us. God, for those in this room who are just checking you out, exploring the claims of Christ, God, we ask that you would speak clearly to them and help them to know you for the first time today. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Now, as we go through chapter 2, we're basically going to be asking and answering these two questions. Why are these verses in the Bible and what do we learn from them? Fair enough? So we're going to hit those two questions on, on what we talk about. Scene 1 in our, uh, in our story today is going to be Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Let me read them for you. It says this, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people, Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so I too may go worship him. Now listen, there's really a lot in these eight verses, so we're going to have to kind of go pretty quick through them. So here are the things that we learn from the first eight verses of Matthew chapter 2. The first thing we note is that Bethlehem is mentioned. Now now listen, if you grew up around Charlie Brown, you know this story, right? I mean, already. You know it was Bethlehem. But it's a big deal that Matthew is writing here about Bethlehem. 
Why? Because, it, well, it's mentioned in verse 1, it's mentioned in verse 5 and 6. It, Jesus being born in Bethlehem is a big deal because it fulfills one of the prophecies about the coming Messiah that's found in the Old Testament. It was a big deal to, to Matthew's hearers and readers during the time that he wrote this because they would have been very familiar with the prophecies of the coming Messiah. They wouldn't have called it the Old Testament, but they would have been very familiar with what it said nonetheless. Matthew is making a very pointed claim that this child that is born, that he is talking about, is the Messiah, is the answer to the prophecy. It's a faith builder for you and I. He's referencing back, just in case you wanted to know, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, which says, But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times, or some of your translations may say, from days of eternity. It's talking about the the Messiah, the coming of Jesus. Matthew is very clearly and plainly saying, this guy, that's who it is. The second thing we note here is these magi, or wise men, some of your translations might say, come from the east. Now we don't know exactly where on the map they came from, but we know they came from a good distance away. We also know that these, uh, these guys weren't Jewish people. So why would... Matthew write this, why would Matthew write this account in there? Why would he say this about them? Well, it's one of the indications, matter of fact, it's one of the first indications that we see that Jesus is to be, he was and is, the Savior of the whole world, not just of one particular people. The birth of Christ was significant for the whole world, and it continues to be significant for the entire world. The Messiah is a gift to all people, God through a miraculous sign in the heavens, made the announcement to Magi, people that were far away from the the people of God at the time, the people of Israel. And he makes the, the, the announcement of Jesus. Why? Because he wants us to know that that announcement is for you and I as well. That's a huge deal. And what is their response? Their response is to go and find this child so that they may worship him. We also see a guy in the story named King Herod. Herod, in these first eight verses, we see that he's upset. He's a little scared, actually, because there's this new child that's been born that's called King of the Jews. And Herod called himself King of the Jews. And so he is threatened. We're going to come back to Herod in one of our other scenes that we'll talk through. We also see the religious leaders in the first eight verses. These guys intrigue me, these religious leaders. You see, these are the guys the chief priests and the teachers of the law, Herod brings them together and says, tell me where this king of the Jews was supposed to be born. So they knew. They knew the scripture. They knew the prophecies. They knew to be looking for the Messiah. Yet, they don't acknowledge him there. And all throughout Jesus' life, they don't ever acknowledge that he really is the Messiah. Now, why would they do that? Why would they not recognize it? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons. I think one of those reasons is that maybe they became indifferent. They became a little indifferent to the Scripture and the prophecy that was foretold about the coming Messiah. Maybe it was that they were comfortable in doing their religious practices and exercises, that they had missed that they were in need of a Savior. They thought, you know what? We're doing okay. We're following the religious customs. We're following the religious rules of the day. And so we must be okay. 
And that's a deadly trap that even you and I fall in. Now, we've all heard a variation of this silly joke. Let's say, let's say, Gary, you and I are out walking through the woods, right? We're on a hike and a bear attacks us. How fast do I have to run? Pretty fast or faster than you, right? Now, we all hear that. Kind of a silly joke, yes? Silly joke. But you know what we often do in our walk with Christ? As, we, as we're seeking, maybe? We start looking around and we go, you know what? I'm living better than this guy. I'm, I'm living better than this lady. I don't, I don't do what they do. So certainly God's going to look at me and go, ah, oh, you got it all good, John. Thanks for being awesome. It's not the way God looks at things. We don't outrun somebody else to make God love us more. And I think in a lot of ways, these guys, these religious leaders, these chief priests, I think that that's sort of what they were doing. They were going, we've got it. We're okay. So you and I, here's what we learned from these guys. We have to learn to not be like them. It's easy. It is easy to grow up in church and hear all about the story of God and the story of Jesus and yet miss your need for Him. It's very, very easy. Some of you know my story. I've shared it with you before. I won't, I won't take the time this morning to tell you my whole salvation story. But just know this. I grew up in the church. My earliest memories are from being in the church. I could have told you as a 6th grader or a 7th grader how you were to, to know Christ so that you could be saved. But I didn't. I wasn't yet a Christian. And I knew all of that stuff. It wasn't until just before my high school years that, that God finally got a hold of me. I finally realized that this sin that the Scriptures talked about was talking about me. Talking about me. And that I was in need of a Savior. And I went, oh gosh, I've missed it. I knew all about it, but I missed it. Listen, we have to be very, very, very careful that we don't miss it. That we don't miss that relationship, that submitting to God. So let's evaluate our lives. Let's ask those questions and see, are we being like these indifferent religious scholars who knew the Word? but yet didn't follow it in terms of knowing who Jesus was. Let's jump to scene number two, found in Matthew chapter 2, verses 9-12. through 12. After they, meaning the Magi, had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child was with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another way. What's going on here? Well, the Magi leave King Herod. God continues to provide signs for them on how to find this Messiah. When they arrive, what is their response? They bow down and worship this new king. They opened up their treasures and presented Jesus with some very significant gifts. Gold and incense and myrrh. Gifts fit for a king and very, very valuable gifts. Gifts that would have been used uh, potentially by them as they were traveling to help pay their way to come see this Messiah. Gifts maybe that Jesus' family used to pay for their travels to Egypt that we will read about in just a few moments in the next scene. But their response is what I want us to key in on. Because I think that's what God wants us to learn from from them. Is their response was to bow down and worship 
the Messiah. John Stott in his book, Basic Christianity, basically says that when we hear about Jesus, we're introduced to Jesus, we're driven to one of three extremes. And this is a little bit of a loose paraphrase of what he says. You either run away in fear because you don't want to give up control. You want to, you want to keep control. You don't, you don't trust God, so you run away in fear from Him. Or you attack in anger because you wrongly attribute the hard times in life to being God's fault. Or, like the Magi, you bow down in complete, and surrender, complete surrender and you spend the rest of your life learning what that means to surrender to Him on a daily basis. And so my question for you today is that I think you need to ask yourself is, what extreme were you driven to when you heard about Christ? Or where are you at now? Are you still running from Him? Either because you're afraid, or are you attacking, and in essence then running away? Or are you, as best you understand it, surrendering to Him your entire life? Because that's really what true worship is. True worship is saying, God, you've got me. You've got all of who I am, my time, my talents, my treasure, every bit of me. Scene 3, Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child and kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, what's going on here? Well, we see that God speaks to Joseph again through a dream, through an angel. Joseph, who we learned about last week, was a person of faith, one that someone who obeyed God no matter what God said, no matter even if it was sounded a little bit crazy. And so Joseph got up and took his family to Egypt to escape what was going to happen. Now, what's significant about this? Well, it teaches us, teaches us obedience, but it also is Matthew making the claim again that this baby that was born is an answer to the Old Testament prophecy about the coming Messiah. Matthew is again putting a stake in the ground saying, this child, he is the one that is the answer. Because Matthew references back to Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, which says, Out of Egypt I called my son. Again, that's one of the prophecies about the coming Messiah. It's a huge faith builder for the people then that read this originally. and It ought to be a huge faith builder for us now. Scene 4, things get a little bit terrible. It's part of the Christmas story, the Christmas text that we don't read a lot. Because it is terrible. But it's in verses 16 through 18. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was filled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. That's a terrible story, isn't it? Scholars tell us that it was probably 20 to 50 young boys that were killed because of Herod. Now, who is this guy, Herod? Herod was a nutcase, to be honest with you. He was a very, very brutal leader and ruler. When he came to power, he had the, the previous dynasty's family and relatives 
all killed because he didn't want to have another uprising. At one point in time, he executes half of the Sanhedrin. Now the Sanhedrin, they were a group of people that basically served as the religious kind of supreme court in our world. And he he disagreed with them, got mad at them about something, and so he said, you know what, I'm going to kill half of you. And he killed half of them. He was afraid that his two oldest sons were going to take over his power. And so what did he do? He had them killed. He had ten wives. One of them had a brother who was a priest. And and he, he got to where he was afraid of this priest. So you know what he did? He guessed it. He had the priest killed and he had his wife killed. He even had some prominent, prominent Jewish people put in prison towards the end of his life so that on the day he died, he left orders that those prominent Jewish leaders would be killed as well so that people would cry on the day that he died because he knew that he was really kind of hated by the Jewish people. They knew that, he knew that there would be celebration and he wanted there to be tears on the day that he died. And so he left orders for these guys to be killed and that's what happened. He was a brutal person, a brutal leader. What do we learn from this passage? Well, it's a good question. Well, there's two things I think that we learn. One is, again, it is another stake in the ground from Matthew as he references back to the Old Testament prophecies of the coming Messiah. This one found in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse, verse, verse 15. Again, he's, Matthew's building the scriptural case that Jesus is indeed the Messiah that the people are waiting for. But second, I think we need to each realize that all of us have a little bit of Herod in us. Now, some of you may be shocked that I would say that. You're going, wait a second, I'm not going to kill anybody. I would never do anything like that. And you're right. Most of us would not even think of doing anything like that. But if we start peeling back the layers to Herod and we go, why did he act that way? Why was he so, why was he so brutal? Why was he so afraid? Well, ultimately, it came down to because he liked to be in control. He liked to be the one that was number one in his life. And he had the power because of who he was and the position that he held, he had the power to do whatever he wanted to to kind of keep control and make sure that he was the center of his own universe. Well, thankfully, most of us don't have that kind of power, but most of us, at some point in our lives, we like to be the center of our own universe, yes? And I like to be in control. We all want to be in control of our own lives. We like to say, we know what's best. We know how to live. We don't want to listen to God and give complete control over to God, who, by the way, knows how to live life better. John 10.10 10 says he came to give us life and life to the fullest. We don't want to give him control because some, for some reason we think we've got it all down and we want to be the center of our own world and call all the shots. My oldest son, Caleb, when he, uh, I don't remember if it was this birthday or the birthday before, but he had gotten one of those quadcopters for his birthday. And man, he became a master at flying that thing. All right, it was awesome going out there and watching fly it around the neighborhood and all that kind of stuff. And I went outside one day. I thought, you know what? I can fly this. It's a remote control. I used to race remote control cars when I was a kid. How different can this be? And so I grabbed the remote control. And he's like, Dad, let me please. Let me show you how to do it. Let me tell you how to do it. I was like, man, son, I got it. Don't worry. I can take care of this. I know it's got buttons that goes faster and turn left and right. Can't be that hard. So I'm out there and I'm flying it. I last all of 10 seconds flying the thing. And I send it straight into the neighbor's tree about midway up. And now I'm trying to figure out, okay, how do I save face and get this thing down? Why did I do that? Because I didn't want to listen to somebody who knew what they were doing. My son had learned how to fly. He, he learned what direction those little lights, by the way, it had lights that told you what was the front and the back. That was, that was a piece that I didn't know. 
But if I would have stopped long enough to just listen to him, he would have said, and I don't remember what they are now, the red lights are the front. When you turn that way, it's that way. I would have listened. I'd be like, oh, okay. So when I thought I was turning left, it really turned right and sent me into that tree. What, what does that illustrate? It illustrates that I still like to be in control. I still like to think I'm the one that knows everything that's going on. Reality for all of us is, is that we're all there. We've got to learn to not be like Herod, to give up control, and not just give up to control to somebody else, but we need to give up control of our lives to God, who, by the way, really does know um, how he wants us to live and wants the absolute best for us. That leads us to the final scene, verses 19 through the end of the chapter. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene. What do we learn from this one? Again, I think we learn a few things. We learn from Joseph this obedience that when God speaks, that we act. When God speaks, we act. We don't miss out on that. But we also see that Jesus is moved to a town called Nazareth, thus fulfilling the prophecy that the Messiah would come and be known as a Nazarene. Again, Matthew's putting the stake in the ground saying, this is the child. In case you were wondering, don't forget what all of the Old Testament says. This is the guy that Scriptures were talking about. He's making the stake in the ground for us. He's planting it there. But there's another thing that we can learn about this location and why it was important in Jesus' life and development. Now, to make this case, I have to remind us that God was both, or Jesus was both fully God, meaning that He was perfect and had all the morals that go along with being God and, and all that, that that is. And He was also both fully man at the same time, meaning that He was tempted in the same way that you and I are tempted. Now, thankfully, Jesus made it through living a sinless life so that he could be a sacrifice for us so that our sins could be forgiven. But he's both fully God and fully man. If you ask me to explain that to you, I can't fully work that out for you, at least on this side of eternity. But when you get to heaven one day, God will explain it and we'll all get together and we'll go, oh, that's how that works. All right? But it is something that we believe as followers of Christ, that he's fully God, fully man. Well, growing up in this town of Nazareth, let me tell you a little bit about this town. This town... um, was a Roman military outpost. All right? Meaning that it had a lot of young men who certainly weren't Christ followers at that time because they were a part of the Roman Empire, the Roman army. They weren't they they probably weren't even followers of God at that point. And they would have they would have lived that way, if you know what I'm saying. And so this town is full of people who are very, very, very far from God, living lives that are very, very, very far from God. And Jesus grew up in and around that, watching that, observing that, and gaining perspective on people and getting this heart and compassion for people. One of the reasons why we can see in Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 and 10, that Jesus had no trouble sitting down with sinners and outcasts. Because in a lot of ways, he had been around that his whole life. And when he saw those sinners and outcasts, you know what he saw? 
He saw people that he loved and, that, and people that needed a relationship with God the Father. And he had, as Scripture says, he had compassion on them. So what do we learn from Jesus there? I think it's a lesson for us, for those that have been followers of Christ for a while. Because for those that have been followers of Christ for a while, it's very, very easy for us to kind of get in this little bubble of only being around Christians, isn't it? It's easy for us to get there. And when we do that, we lose touch with the rest of the world and the sinners and outcasts. And then instead of looking upon them with compassion, we look upon sinners and outcasts with judgment. You and I need to learn to live as Jesus did, which is that when we look at people, we know and realize that there's not been one person created that God did not love and does not love. And He absolutely wants that person to turn from their sin and to turn towards Him. You and I need to model our lives after this Christ child. As we've gone through this whole series throughout December, it's been a faith builder for me to know that that there is a God who loves us that did the impossible to come and reconcile you and me to Him. And that's how we can go through these times of life, our lives, where there's times of tremendous grief, and yet there's also times of tremendous joy. Let me ask you to bow your head and close your eyes with me for a moment. I'm going to ask that we move into a time of prayer. Jed's going to play a little bit in the background for us. If you're a follower of Christ, let me ask you to do this over these next couple of moments. Let me ask you just to take the next few minutes and pray. Thank God for your salvation. Thank God for this time of year. But also pray for people in this room that don't yet know who He is. Pray that they would respond to God's love and grace and mercy. For those of you that are here today, maybe you've grown up in church, kind of like my story, or maybe this is the first time you've ever stepped into a church. Let me ask you a question. Are you running from God? Because if you are, if you are, know this, that God is lovingly pursuing you. I don't mean chasing you, make you run further or faster, but lovingly pursuing you. Because He wants you, He wants you to have life to the fullest here on earth. He also wants you to be able to be in heaven with Him one day for an eternity. And so if this morning you want to become a follower of Jesus, then tell God something like this in your own words. Lord Jesus, to the best that I understand it, I ask you to come into my life to be my leader and my forgiver. By asking you to be my leader, God, I submit to you. I give you control of who I am. I hand my life over to you. God, you know better than I do. God, I ask you to be my forgiver. In other words, God, forgive me for me choosing to go my own way and thinking that I've got it all right. God, forgive me of my sin. Now listen, with your heads bowed and your eyes still closed, if you prayed that prayer or something like it, even if you got the words wrong, it doesn't matter about the words exactly. They're not a magic prayer. It's not a magic rote thing that we say or do. 
Not to concern about what's going on inside of you, but if you prayed a prayer like that just now, on the back of that communication card that Andrew spoke about earlier in the service, there's a box that you can check that says, Today I'm becoming a follower of Jesus. If you'll check that box, let us know about that decision. Why? Because we as a church exist to help people connect with God and to help them grow in their faith. And we want to be able to help you on that journey. You can turn that card in in just a few moments. We worship God by giving our tithes and offerings. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this morning and this time of year where we celebrate how much you love us through your son's birth. And it's in your name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Dogwood Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the message. For more information and other sermons, visit dogwood.church. If you'd like to give to Dogwood Church, you can use your smartphone and text keyword dogwood to 779-77 or click the Give link online. You can now download the Dogwood Church app for Apple and Android devices for podcasts, video, and more.